Good evening, everyone. It is Friday night, Friday night. Uh, good to have everyone on with us. And uh, welcome back to all of our faithful uh, listeners and followers to another Friday night. And we want to extend a warm welcome to any of our first time listeners. Thank you for joining us tonight, and we do hope you'll enjoy uh, what we have for you this evening. Also, just as a reminder and to direct any first-time listeners, uh, please, you can find out more about us, uh, Newark United Pentecostal Church, on our uh, webpage at newarkupc.info. There you can find all sorts of information about what we're doing right now, uh, continuing in our digital format. Uh, we're doing small groups. You can find out how to join one. There's an area to find out uh, how we're entertaining and teaching our kids um, at this point under our kid, Kids Hub. And also you can find out how to partner with us in prayer, uh, submit prayer requests, and also partner with us in giving. So uh, lots of information there, even beyond that. I just want to direct you there um, should you want to find out more about us. So tonight, uh, for those who are familiar, we are in our Friday night, and it's always Friday night with friends here at 7 p.m. on a Friday. And so tonight, uh, I have uh, my friend here and friend to uh, a handful of us at Newark UPC, um, Dr. Ann Ahrens with us, and I'm going to let her um, greet you all in just a moment, but I just wanted to share um, who she is, a little bit about what she does, and um, I think you're really going to enjoy what she has to educate us on, as I say uh, tonight. Our church is a, a little bit nerdy, um, mm -hmm. if you haven't figured that out yet, uh, through our broadcasts and topics um, our weekly themes, you know, things that we choose to dive into. We're nerds and our congregation, they're nerds too. And we love um, topics. The topic is one that is, I mean, I'm trying to think when I've ever heard a preaching or teaching specific to her topic. Um, I don't know that I have. And I was talking to uh, and last night on the phone, we talked for an hour and a half and, you know, neither of us really wanted to get off. We just looked at the clock and said, well, I guess we should go now. <laughs> but really, it was just so interesting to hear. Anyway, all right. So Anne is a, uh, a friend of mine that um, I knew back in uh, when I went to Christian Graduate School of Theology in St. Louis. She is also a graduate. Um, of Urshan Graduate School. We had a couple classes together, I know, but also just spent time together, you know, hanging out and uh, lamenting. That's our word of the night. <laughs> Sometimes over our studies and assignments and deadlines that were hard pressed or whatever. But Anne's uh, a very beautiful lady inside and out. And um, she's, she's uh, very accomplished as well. Let me just read a little bit um, so you can understand uh, her background. Her, she has a master's degree from Webster University um, and a um, uh, master's of theological studies um, from Urshan Graduate School. And that's when, where I knew her. She knows uh, Pastor Stephen as well, uh, you know, Arash as well, a handful of, of uh, people at 
our church. Um, and then from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, um, this is her PhD on Christian worship and the arts. So her dissertation topic is, um, I wanna get this uh, title right, Suffering, Soul Care, and Community, the Place of Lament in Corporate Worship. And so this is what Anna's gonna be sharing with us tonight. Um, uh, lament and worship is the way I kind of shorthanded it. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but um, she's going to be sharing this, her studies. And um, it's a very, very, uh, a topic I would say is, is, is uh, emerging. That's kind of what we talked about last night. And as you were saying, it's getting a little bit more attention and uh, articles and things like that and studies. Um, but she has really, it's, it's really, you're really gonna like this tonight. Um, she also is currently working uh, as residency coordinator internal medicine department at Wash U uh, in St. Louis. And so she also teaches um, at the university, uh, excuse me, at Urshan Graduate School of Theology, as well as Urshan College. And she uh, teaches worship arts there. So um, I would say her plate is full. <laughs> but if I know Anne, she does all things well. And so um, I know that uh, she's probably enjoying all that she's juggling. But with that, I'm excited to introduce her tonight and to let her educate us on uh, lament and worship and share uh, her studies through her dissertation. So greet us tonight. All right. Well, thank you so much, um, Meg. And um, Pastor Beardsley and and everyone who I can't see, <laughs> I have to give a shout out to my friend Carolyn Harrington, Meg's mom, who oh, yes, who I love with all of my heart and soul. Um, one of the coolest people that God ever made, probably in the top five coolest people God ever made. <laughs> so um, now that she's thoroughly embarrassed, but anyway, um, yeah, I'm um, just really thankful for this invitation and. Um, as Meg found out last night, you went, when you throw me a bone and get me talking about this, <laughs> it's really hard for me to stop. Um, but it wasn't just, you know, this big fat project that I had to write um, to get my PhD, but it really um, be, has become uh, my heart and soul and the thing that um, makes me feel more alive than anything else um, is when I talk about this. And so, um, I'm very thankful to be able to share. So um, how I came to the topic of looking at um, lament in as an act of worship um, really came through my own story. Um, I didn't go looking for it. It sort of found me. Um, I had gone through a long period of um, sickness, physical sickness. And, you know, when you're physically ill for a long time, it affects you emotionally and mentally, too. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, Throughout this 10-year period, I really struggled with um, the collision between my belief and my experience, what I believed about God and what I had been taught, and then what I was experiencing in my life. And those two collided really hard. And um, I was sort of left in a heap on the ground, metaphorically. But, um, you know, I believed God could heal. I'd been taught that God could heal. And I still believe that God can heal and does mm -hmm. heal. 
Um, but for whatever reason, um, I was not. And so I did what a lot of people do. I felt guilt. Well, I don't have enough faith or there's something wrong with me or God is judging me. Um, and then I honestly cannot remember when or how, but I, um, fell into the Psalms of lament. And so, um, I, if you are a reader of the Psalms, um, you know that the Psalms basically are, a, a lot of scholars divide them into types or categories, like there's Psalms of praise and Psalms of thanksgiving and um, various different types. But the largest category, the largest category of the Psalms are the lament Psalms, or some people call them the Psalms of suffering or the Psalms of protest or the Psalms of complaint. And so out of the 150 Psalms that we have, at least 67 of them are fully lament psalms. Hmm. And even many of the other psalms that are not lament psalms have portions or sections of lament, or either they'll reference a time of suffering that brought them to the, the point that they are. And so um, I, I was so, um, you know, when I discovered them and really began to wrestle with them, was um, just before I started my PhD studies. And so as I started, you know, I didn't know what I would really write on at the end for my dissertation, but it started becoming more and more clear. And then I took a colloquium on the Psalms and that did it, you know, <laughs> I, I knew, I just knew at that point. And so um, I, I was just shocked by the honesty there. And I'd read them for many, many years, most of my life, but I, um, I would just sort of gloss over the ones with the weird language about how long, oh Lord, or, you know, um, those Psalms that seemed like they wanted vengeance on their enemies. And so I would just sort of gloss over that. Um, but then when I really began to engage with that language, it, I knew that, okay, this is like finding the most valuable buried treasure ever and you found it and now there you are and what what is this and you start to unpack it and so basically um i want to share with you just sort of a thirty thousand foot flyover of my dissertation um just because uh, i tried to sort of lay the groundwork scripturally and um sort of theologically and then sort of in practice um sort of the groundwork of why i believe sort of my overarching conclusion is that the function of corporate worship, and when I say worship, I don't just mean singing, although that's a huge part of it, but I mean like the whole entire church service from when we pull into the parking lot to when we pull out and then even our everyday lives as a community of believers. Um, my overarching premise was that the, the corporate worship life of the church should provide soul care. In other words, this sort of holistic kind of care for people who are suffering. And that um, the more I unpacked it, I was completely overwhelmed with the scriptural precedent for this. It, it, it just completely overwhelmed me. In fact, I almost came to the conclusion really that just the overarching premise of scripture was that. Mm. And it's just everywhere, it's just everywhere. So, um, so I, I kind of started obviously with the Old Testament. The first place you know you go is the Psalms, um, the Psalms of lament. Like I said, um, sixty-seven at least of one hundred and fifty are laments. And then, you know, there's the uh, the more obvious um, books in the Old Testament, Job, 
I mean, if that's not a lament, you know, I mean, it's just, and then the book of Lamentations, right? It gets its name from that. And, you know, the whole, throughout the whole book, it's just, you know, the, the prophet sort of lamenting this, you know, um, the, the sins of the people and the destruction of the city. And then really um, shockingly sort of holding God's feet to the fire or like C.S. Lewis said, putting God in the dock putting him on the stand and saying, you didn't uphold your end of the deal. And here we are. And it's really tough language in Lamentations, mm -hmm. but it's in the canon. So what do we do with that? You know? Um, and then Jeremiah, obviously the weeping prophet and actually most of the prophets in the old Testament, um, there's just, they're just laced with lament and, and the struggling of the people. And then like the individual laments like Hannah, who just, had the audacity to go to the temple and weep and you know just brokenness of heart because she couldn't have a child and then naomi who was so filled with sorrow that she just said call me bitter just call me bitterness like that's my name you know um so the old testament is just filled with with lament and and um it's important to realize it's filled with expressions of suffering that that were spoken to God. That's really important because, um, you know, God is, God loves to dialogue with us. Like mm -hmm. all Testament is just filled with God talking back and forth to people. He loves to dialogue with us. And, um, so the old Testament is just filled with these dialogues and of people just saying brutally honest things to God, things that we would just, you know, cover our mouth and, and run and hide like, oh, the lightning's going to strike any minute now because you said that to God, you know, um, but um, it never did. Right. You know, it never did. And even in Job, after everything Job said, God said, my servant Job has spoken of me what is right. But he, you know, he told the friends who sound like us sometimes, <laughs> honestly, he told them, I'm going to have my servant Joe pray for you so that I will, you know, take you out essentially. So um, it's, it's just so shocking how it's almost like God welcomes this, the, the deep honesty of our heart. And as I was talking to Meg last night, I, I used the example that, that I often use when I talk about this, um, Let's say Meg and Arash, we know this never ever happens, but let's just say Meg and Arash get in an argument, you know, and they disagree about something. <laughs> and so, um, you know, if, uh, and Meg gets her feelings hurt, but she doesn't say anything. And so later on, she's just stewing. Oh, I'm so mad. He just hurt my feelings. and It was terrible. But when she sees Arash later on, she says, oh, Arash, I love you so much. You're the best husband. You just you're the best. You're just so perfect and so wonderful. But in her heart, she has this hurt and this pain and this struggle. And so um, if she really trusts that Arash's heart towards her is good mm -hmm. and that he can hold her hurt, then she will go to him and say, you said this or you did this. And I'm struggling and I'm suffering and I'm hurting. Mm. So, so this as the psalmist and Job that we sometimes think that, that they say these awful tough things to God because they don't trust God, but it's exactly just the opposite is that they really knew God's track record. 
they knew his promises of faithfulness and graciousness and steadfast love and long suffering and slowness to anger, like the five attributes that God used to describe himself. And mm. they, they knew that and they would appeal to God's promises and they would appeal to his track record, to his people. And they would say, why aren't you holding up your end of the deal? Because we trust and we know who you are. We know what you've done for us. And so their, their faith in, in Yahweh was so grounded in their trust in him that they would go to him and be honest and authentic in their expressions. And so those, these difficult words were actually incredible acts of trust because they trusted that God could hold that difficult speech. That when I, when I sort of got that, it just, it transformed me. I mean, I can really honestly say that changed my life. Yes. Understood that. So, um, so anyway, moving to the new Testament, um, I'm sure with all of the Bible nerds that you have in your church, um, not just your pastor, but everybody else who's. Oh, uh, everybody. They've been trained. Everybody is like super educated. I was actually really nervous about this tonight because I'm like, they're all so smart. But um, anyway, um, I know that you have heard how much the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament. I know you've talked about that. Um, So, so hundreds of times that the Old Testament is quoted. Um, I remember uh, Dr. Seagrave saying it's like 800 times or something. Mm. It's, it's just a lot. Um, but anyway, um, so, so it, as you, as I began to study, I started realizing how much of the lament language of the Old Testament is carried over into the New Testament. And I mean, we don't have time to get into details, but just um, quickly, um, Paul, I, I was blown away, I actually found a couple of dissertations where um, theolo- these guys studying theology wrote about um, Paul's use of lament in just the book of Romans, a whole dissertation on that, that just was incredible. Um, but like a, a, a great well-known example is from Romans 8, the great chapter that we all love to quote so much with the big verse, Romans 8, 28, you know, mm-hmm. all things work together, that, that verse that we love. But there's a, um, a section in there where Paul talks about how uh, creation is groaning and believers are groaning and even God himself is groaning and longing for the coming of God's kingdom. So it's just this like eschatological thrust, just pushing and, and looking towards even as revelation ends, even so come quickly, just, mm. you know, cause the, the New Testament, there, there was so much persecution and, you know, people were, being crucified upside down and getting their head chopped off and everything that happened to so many writers of the New Testament. Um, this was a suffering people. Um, the whole uh, book of First Peter is a big sermon on suffering, you know, where Paul, Peter says, I think in chapter one, verse eight, like even now, as you are suffering, you rejoice. So like Mm -hmm. he's holding attention that those two things. And so we tend to think, well, I'm either rejoicing or I'm either suffering and never the two shall meet, but they have to meet. And when you realize that, that, that those two always are together, um, it just transforms everything. And so Peter actually drew heavily from several Psalms as he crafted and wrote that sermon essentially the book of first peter and then um the big one revelation i mean um i'm always struck by in revelation i think it's chapter four where 
um, he's there, he's writing and he says, you know, I, I, I looked for someone who was worthy to open the scroll. And I, and I said, there's no one who's worthy. And then he said, I looked and saw a lamb as though it had been slain. And I said, you are worthy to open the scroll for you are mm -hmm. slain. It doesn't say I looked for someone to open the scroll and I looked and behold some mighty warrior riding in on a white horse with a sword and a cape fluttering in the breeze. And he came right. in to vanquish the enemy. No, he, he saw a lamb that had suffered and bled and died and had been slain. Yes, he, Jesus rose, right? He resurrected, but he went through such intense suffering, right? And, and Jesus was not described by Isaiah as, you know, the mighty warrior who vanquished the Romans or whatever. He was described as a man of sorrows and mm -hmm. a man with grief. I mean, that is so um, amazing to me that yeah. how he was, how they chose to describe him, you know, and, and um, we are called to be like him. So that really gives me pause when I think, yes, think about that. I'm a woman of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Yes. You know, I'm called to that. So um, anyway, uh, another section of my dissertation that I, I looked at in depth was um, lament in the life of Jesus, because we know Jesus was our example. Right. Um, yeah. And so um, it's amazing to me how much Jesus wept not just in John when he wept at Lazarus too, but Jesus was always weeping. He was just always weeping. So um, as I said, he was described as a man of sorrows. Um, Hebrews four even says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He, he doesn't say we don't have a high priest who can't just walk in and just pop everybody and win the war. He said, we have a savior who suffered. Yes. I, I just think that's so beautiful. And so, and Jesus, you know, in the, the great, the Beatitudes, this, that is just so stunning and so rich. Um, Jesus didn't say, blessed are they that um, shout down the aisle and, you know, shout their hairpins out, you know, and swing from the chandeliers. Not that there's anything wrong with that. There's a place for that. But Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn. Mm -hmm. blessed, blessed are they that mourn. Um, the fact that um, God would so interest himself in understanding our brokenness from the inside of our humanness. Yes. Luther said. So he sort of, he, he was so interested in our suffering that he got inside of our humanness. Um, that deserves really to be taught and explored because it has so many implications for Christian living. Um, you know, how Jesus was described, what he did, how, the depth of his suffering, um, it, it deserves to be explored. And so there's some key er, uh, events in Jesus' life. I'll just go through quickly. Um, Jesus lamented over Jerusalem when he called the Pharisees blind guides and a brood of vipers, you know, and he got very angry. And he said, how I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her brood. So he's borrowing this language from the Psalms that's directly mm -hmm. from the Psalms. Um, and so um, it's kind of a city lament or he's lamenting over Jerusalem. You know, you've killed the prophets. You've done all these things, but I would have gathered you. 
And then at the death of Lazarus, obvious that's a big one, right? Jesus wept, yeah. the most yeah. famous picture in the Bible, practically. Um, Jesus, uh, John describes Jesus as deeply moved and deeply troubled, which is very much um, in those Psalms of lament. So some scholars think that John borrowed that language to describe that event. Um, Jesus was always weeping, you know, he's always weeping. And of course, the two big ones in the garden. Yes. Three times Jesus got up and said, let this cup pass from me. Because, you know, Jesus grew up in a culture of crucifixions. From a tiny, tiny child, he probably saw people being crucified. Mm, there was that that was capital punishment in that culture. And so he knew what he was in for. Mm -hmm. And so three times he prayed, let this cup, which is also a language borrowed from the Psalms, the cup in the Psalms means the wrath of God. And so he said, let this pass from me. Let this, you know, he, if, is there another way? He, I mean, he knew, but, you know, I think he was experiencing probably fright and panic and anxiety and all the things that we would experience in that situation because he was touched with our suffering, as Hebrews 4 said. So he knew that. Um, and then the big one is the cry from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. Mm. Several scholars, um, several prominent Psalm scholars, James Mays, um, Patrick Miller, think that uh, Jesus probably quoted the whole Psalm. But the fact that it was just the first verse was listed in the gospels probably they meant the reader to understand that the whole psalm was probably created uh, quoted which oh. is an intense psalm and you know why have you forsaken me why have you abandoned me and the greatest cry of the psalmist was um god you can take everything away from me but don't leave me you yeah. know in, in in psalm 51 where David says, my, uh, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And that's a famous psalm that we think David prayed as repentance after his, you know, affair, you know, what he did with Bathsheba and having her husband killed and all the things. And then he was found out. Um, he, he said, do whatever you want, God. I know. Punish me in any way, but don't leave me. Mm -hmm. so for, Jesus, for Jesus to pray from the cross, Psalm 22 meant, number one, that he knew the Psalms, that they were those were his prayer language. Yes. And he was modeling to us to draw from the Psalms of lament in times of suffering. And so, um, and he was modeling to us that, these kinds of things are okay to say when we pray. Yeah, say it again. Say it again, Anne. So those things are okay to say when we pray because we feel abandoned. Yes. And God knows, I always think God knows what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling anyway. So I can just say it to him because he knows anyway, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. I, I often, I often remind myself of that. And so um, Jesus over and over in all of these prayers of suffering um, was, was modeling to us how to pray and how to draw from the Psalms um, to, to shape our prayers. And so um, I know I'm talking really fast, but I want to really want to get this next, this next part in. So um, I found um, as I was studying 
um, in my dissertation work, um, a series of sermons by Tim Keller, who's a Presbyterian pastor in New York City. And he um, did a series of uh, sermons on the Psalms, which are, some of them are on YouTube, you can find them, but he looked at different emotions in the Psalms and praying those emotions, um, praying your doubt, praying your fear, mm. praying your, your guilt, praying your tears. And um, he, he said three things at the beginning of each sermon that struck me so deeply. He said, um, number one, religion, just religion in general, pretty much teaches people to stuff your emotions, stuff your feelings because, oh, I can't feel this way about God or I'm a Christian. I'm not supposed to be angry. Mm -hmm. So I have to stuff it, stuff it. And anyone, I'm sure you have people in your church who are counselors and psychologists and what I will tell you, one of the most unhealthy things that we can do is stuff, stuff, oh, yeah. difficult, difficult emotions. It's very unhealthy. And I don't think God built us to stuff them. Um, but so religion tends to teach us to stuff them. Secular culture teaches you that, oh, my emotions, this is just how I feel. And this is just who I am. And there's sort of the end all be all. Right. But Keller posited that the Psalms give us what he calls a gospel third way for mm. dealing with our feelings. The Psalms don't tell us to stuff them and they don't just tell us to, to just express them and be them, but they tell us to pray them in, in what, what he terms as pre-reflective prayers, or in other words, prayers without filter, no filter. So, so it's not just that I pray about my anger, like, oh God, I have this anger and I don't know what to do with it and I shouldn't feel this way. Or, oh God, I, I have this feeling of frustration towards you and oh, this is bad. But no, don't pray about it, pray it. Oh, come pray, on. Pray the anger, pray the frustration, pray right. the depression, pray the anxiety, pray the fear, pray the guilt, pray the doubt pray those emotions. This is what the psalmists do every single time. There, in Psalm 3, there's a praying the fear. Psalm 73, praying the doubt. Psalm 130, praying the guilt. Um, there, there's so many examples in scripture. And so um, one of the big ones that's very difficult to, for us to do is pray anger. And so, um, we have a psalm for that. <laughs> I have a psalm for that. There's a psalm for that. That's yeah, going to be the new saying. Yeah. So, so this type of psalm, and you probably heard this um, taught, but is the imprecatory psalms, and these are the psalms that we really feel uncomfortable with. Um, one of the big ones is like Psalm 137, where um, you know they're saying um, we hung our harps on the willows, you know, and our captors said, "Play us a song," and we said, "Well, how can we sing the song of?" of Jerusalem in a strange land. And then they said, they get angry. The psalmist does. And he says, blessed is he who dashes your children against the rocks. Like he's saying that he's praying. He's saying this to God. He's saying, blessed is the, the person who's going to come to our captors and take yeah. their children and slam them against the rocks. Now, have you ever thought about saying that to God? <laughs> Probably not. Right. But, but but we're just like, what do we do with that? And I I was reading a commentary by Clinton McCann. Um, it's a wonderful book um, that he wrote. And he said that this these kinds of psalms are teaching us um, that 
we must pray our anger. The, the most healthy place to bring your anger is to pray it in God's presence. Because in the act of doing so, we cede the anger to God, who is the only one who can rightfully mete out vengeance. Mm. If I do it, I will dash their children against the rocks. Yes. But if we cede the anger to God, he is the only one who can rightfully and 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 deal with these sort of things. And he does. I, I, I do think he does. Um one of the examples of a of a psalm of imprecation is Psalm 69. I'll just read it really fast. Um, mm-hmm. let their let their supper be bait in a trap that snaps shut. May their best friends be trappers who will skin them alive. And this is from the message. He says, make them become blind as bats and give them the shakes from morning till night. Let them know what you think of them. Blast them with your red hot anger. So so he he's He's, this is what he's saying he wants to happen to his enemies. Burn down their houses. Leave them desolate with nobody at home. They gossiped about the one you disciplined, and they made up stories about anyone wounded by God. Pile on the guilt. Don't let them off the hook. Strike their names from the list of the living. No, uh, no rock-carved honor for them among the righteous. I mean, have you ever felt that way about somebody before? Oh, goodness. Um, yeah. And so, so um, but... The, the psalmists are, are bringing this to God um, because if we stuff anger, it's such an unhealthy emotion to, to stuff. And God knows that because he built us. Yes. He built us. And so um, it's very important. I know we're out of time. So I see the little scrolling message. Oh, that's okay. We've got, um, we've got uh, he puts that up there and then we um, let a couple questions come in so that we can then start feeding them. So is there, is there uh, something you want to, thing you want to say, Anne, go ahead. Yeah. Just one last thing that I wanted to talk about that I think is very important um, is um, within the Psalms there, there tend to be these cycles around lament and so sometimes we have um, psalms of some we call psalms of orientation, praise. Everything is good. Life is settled and at peace. Then something happens to cause disorientation or suffering. Something happens. You name it. And this is these are the psalms that we we call the negative psalms or the lament psalms, the complaints, the protests. You know those types of psalms. And, and then something happens, whether over a period of years or instantly, where the psalmist will suddenly say, um, but you came to my rescue and you delivered me from the pit and you set my feet on solid ground and delivered me from the miry clay. And so this is what we call the new orientation or the turn where deliverance came. Now, it didn't always happen. There's a couple of Psalms where it never happened. Psalm 88, Psalm 37, the darkest of all the Psalms. Mm. Um, But most of the time, there's this cycle that happens. And it's really interesting. Walter Brueggemann is the big Old Testament scholar who writes about this. And he said that this cycle of orientation, disorientation, and new orientation is found even in the life of Jesus. We obviously know what the disorientation was, the cross, the crucifixion, the new orientation, the resurrection to new life. And so the conclusion of that is that you can't get to new orientation. You can't get to resurrection unless you go through suffering Mm. and death. And so this is like the arc of scripture. 
And yeah. so, um, yeah, so we can apply that to our lives in the sense that to really get to authentic praise, we must go through lament. If we skip the lament, the praise tends to be hollow. Yes. Oh, it's so true. If you think about times when you have suffered and you brought that to God and then whatever happens, God gives you grace to endure it. God heals you. God delivers you. Whatever happens. And then you come to the new orientation, to the, the change that the suffering has brought in you. The praise that erupts from that, it's like when we if we celebrate good friday and then we celebrate easter right good yeah. friday is suffering and sadness and darkness and then you get to easter and you blow the roof off the place right, right. <laughs> because you know what happened you know what you're celebrating and so it's just a really important cycle that you can find throughout the psalms yeah so anyway i'll be quiet and take questions now <laughs> no that's great we'll hear more you know that's the good thing yeah. about the questions is that we get yeah. to hear more yeah. you know through those but um we so appreciate um, all that you have educated us with in this oh, thank you i hope i didn't talk you so. <laughs> no you did great this is so awesome i know we have questions so i'm going to throw it right to caleb so the first question is from the most awesome person, uh, the, the coolest person in the world, uh, your good friend, Carolyn oh, Harrington. Wow. Um, do you think our view of brokenness and God's view of brokenness are different? Um, I mean, initially, right off the bat, I think probably yes. Um, because we, we have this tendency um, to, uh, we have to avoid that. Either we have to avoid being mm -hmm. broken or appearing to be broken. Right. Because, and like Meg and I were talking about this last night, um, Western culture has taught us this sort of idea of triumphalism, that we can win all the wars, we can solve all the problems. We have, you know, doctors who can heal any disease. We can do anything. And so um, that's that's um, that sort of idea. And I mean, it's true. We have wonderful doctors. We live in a wonderful country. I love all of those things. Don't get me wrong. But um, sometimes the menta that mentality in sort of infiltrates the church and infiltrates our mindset as Christians. And so oh, we cannot accept brokenness or we won't, we won't. But Jesus demonstrated for us what broken, the value of brokenness, you know, he modeled that. So, I mean, cause when he was resurrected, he still had wounds, not scars, mm -hmm. but wounds. And so why the resurrected Christ would have wounds really is something that we could think about. Mm, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That'll preach. I know. Uh, I'm like, oh, I love that. I know. I'm having a hard time oh over God. here. I'm, I'm choking on everything you're giving us. I'm trying to follow it. No, it's good. <laughs> All right, Caleb. So, next question is from Meg's hubby, Arash. What do you recommend when someone only prays one particular emotion? And how can we diversify our prayer emotions? Yeah, well, I think one of the most wonderful ways, and I read this in a book by N.T. Wright. Um, he has a little book called The Case for the Psalms. Um, and he really advocates reading through the book of Psalms every month. And so I actually sent a little chart to Meg to share with everyone. Um, so how, that divides the book of Psalms up into 30 days of reading. And so it's actually a very ancient practice that was um, in ancient, ancient monastic communities that they pray through the Psalms every month. 
And um, N.T. Wright talks about how the Psalms will begin to reshape the way you pray because mm -hmm. you're reading praise and thanksgiving, but you're also reading lament and you're re reading protest and complaint and all these, like there's not an emotion that we have as humans that is not in the Psalms because as Tim Keller says, the Psalms are God's casebook. Like these are actual people who prayed those actual prayers and they did it in community is, is the most stunning thing. They did it together. Um, they did it in community. And so to read through the Psalms every month, you start to notice that the way you pray starts to change. It's very subtle, but it, it's, I think for me anyway, it, it was very transformative. So I want to do that just for our listeners. So, you know, uh, what Anne sent me the chart and she also sent kind of a bullet point um, handout covering a lot and a little bit more than what uh, she went over tonight. Those are going to be found on our website. We will get those up. So there you'll have access to that at newrqpc.info just for everybody's information. Mm -hmm. So we have a question from Ruth Lanciano saying, how do you advise someone the you sense is mad at God if they are a non-believer or distant from God, like if they're mad about injustice or suffering in the world. Well, I mean, honestly, I would just advise them to say it, to say it to God. I mean, because honestly, the psalmists do. I mean, and they don't, um, and not just the psalmist, there's Job, there's Lamentations, you know, all the ones that we mentioned, but I would advise them to, you know, the psalmist did it, you know, in, in psalmic poetic language, but they pretty much, if you read the message translation, they essentially just came out and said, I am, I am so angry at you, God. I am so mad at you. And, and they very much said, just straight said it to God and expressed that to God. And um, because I think it's important for people to understand that as the Psalms say, he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust, right? Because um, uh, one author I read, Todd Billings, he said, for us to understand God's ways would be like Einstein trying to explain the theory of relativity to his beagle. Wow. Really, I mean, like, here's God, here's me. You know, I may not, the screen's not big enough, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's just, um, God knows that I am dust and he obviously knows that he is God. And so, um, God is not offended when we are, when we are honest in our expressions to him, he is not offended because if he was, I do not think the Psalms of lament would be in scripture. I, I mean, there would be so much that we'd have to take to redact from scripture that our Bible would shrink by at least half. I mean, there's so many difficult expressions, but but I think, um, you know, look at the, the expressions of Jesus. Why have you forsaken me? Right. Why mm -hmm. have you abandoned me? Um, you know, that's, those are tough, tough words. Um, they're very poetic. But um, so I would advise someone, even if they're a non-believer, even if they don't even believe, know if they believe in God, to absolutely without filter say what they want to say to God. Because, I mean, he's God, you know, I, he's he doesn't get offended. He doesn't have an ego. Um, he has nothing to prove. 
You know, I, I mean, yeah. I think, I think, God, I think God longs for authentic dialogue with us. Mm, yes. He longs for it. He wants to know us. He created us. He created us to know us, you know, so I, I, that's what I would advise. I mean, if, if, if your pastor advises otherwise, absolutely defer. But, um, you know, I, I feel like the Psalms give us precedent for that. So, yes. I have a feeling that straight talking Pastor Beardsley would well, second the say, motion. <laughs> I, I don't know of anyone who straight talks more and better than Pastor Beardsley. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So, so we have another question from Scott Lucas. Uh, how can we overcome the fear that we are not worthy of the Lord's healing and forgiveness due to our brokenness? So kind of tying in to, um, to Carolyn's question about brokenness here. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, and that's such a, a beautiful question. I love that question. Um, yes. And I think that... Um, mm, I think that because uh, I've I've thought about this before that sometimes I'm ashamed to say the deepest things in my heart to God because I feel embarrassed. And I think and I've thought about that a lot because I think I wouldn't want to say like to Meg, there are some things I would be too embarrassed to say that I feel in my heart. Um, or things, you know, that I'm ashamed of or whatever um, because I'm broken or I, you know, because of my sinfulness. And, and so I think like sometimes we sort of put that over on God, you know, so we think that God is like mankind, mm -hmm. right? God is like, God is like Meg, you know, God, oh, I, I can't say that to Meg. So I can't say that to God, but, but, um, I, I think that um, one of the most wonderful things for me is um, I have just concluded that God is such a mystery because I am a beagle, <laughs> you know, and he is Einstein, you know. And so I like I just have to accept the fact that that he is not like man. Right. What's the famous scripture? God is not a man that he could lie. Well, God is not a man. Just they could have put the period there. He is not he is not flesh and blood like us. Right. Right. So, so things that I would be ashamed of or think I am too broken and I don't deserve that. Um, I think we have to really go back to the cross and we have to understand that that the work that Jesus did on the cross was not just so that when you die, you don't go to hell. Right. I mean, because and, and this is pretty blunt, but um, I'm channel channeling my inner Pastor Beardsley here. Gonna be blunt. If the only reason that Jesus died on the cross is so that you don't have to go to hell when you die, what a waste! Because yeah, he just snapped his fingers and done that. Right. But he came to he came to us so that we would know that he knows our suffering. Right. And, and he, he, he gave of himself and his body was broken and shattered and he suffered as we are. And he was our atonement. He was the lamb slain. Mm. He was worth, he is worthy. Right. So, so yeah. I like the cross, like touches your brokenness every single day. It touches your depression. It touches the abuse that was perpetrated against you. It touches your sinfulness. It touches, you know, every single part of your life, like, the, the cross is everything, right? And so I think that we have to understand the magnitude of the cross 
And when we do, I mean, it, I can't even get my head around it, but it, it changes the way that I approach Jesus because yes. I know that I don't understand it all, but what he did for me was so big that if he did that for me, I can come to him, you know, and, and I, you know, it's not like, I don't think we'll just get that. And then we're never afraid to come. I think every day we just have to remind ourselves of the cross. And I think that's what Paul did. Like Paul never got over the cross. Yeah. You know, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, you know, at the end of Romans 11, I think Paul was just beside himself. And he was always saying like, I don't know anything else except yeah. Christ and him crucified. That's all I know. Yeah. Right. I think he just never got over what the cross meant for him in his life. And so I think like, I would say when you feel like stuck in your brokenness, like go back to the cross. And I like, sometimes I like just picture myself sitting behind the cross with my knees drawn up under my chin, hugging my, my hand around my legs. And I just put my head down and I just lean against the cross because it's safe there. Yeah. You know, it's just safe there um, because of what Jesus did. So anyway, I could go on and on about that one. (laughs) That's a beautiful question though. That was a beautiful answer. Thank you. Uh, so Nancy Abshire Norris, I'm not up on Urshan people, but I guess that might be of some relation to the esteemed brother (laughs) Norris. So Nancy Abshire Norris asks, what might be a start to incorporate limit in our only upbeat services? Ooh. Oh man. She's, she's really, she's, she's getting all over our toes now. Mr. (laughs) Norris. I, I think I was talking to Meg about this last night and this is a huge one. And like in my dissertation, I was, mo- I mostly worked to point out the problem. Um, you know, the sequel would be now, what do we do? But I have thought a lot about what we do, but um, I think that number one, we have to remember, and I I'm borrowing this phrase from um, my colleague, Jared Runk at Urshan college. He said to me one time several years ago, this phrase or this sentence that absolutely knocked me off my feet. He said, worship is not pain denial. We think that worship only means I say positive things to God. Yeah. Yeah. But, but if the book of Psalms in Hebrew is Tehillim, which means praises, then what in the world are all those laments doing in a book called praises, right? So I think we have to understand, we have to redefine worship. Worship does not just mean positive, emotive expressions. Yes. It doesn't, but I think it means authenticity and vulnerability before God with who I am as a human being. So I think we have to redefine what worship we have, or we just have to understand what worship even means. Right. Um, it is not, it is not pain denial. Um, um, we have to understand, um, the communal nature of worship in scripture. Like even the individual Psalms were ultimately communal because many of them were deposited in the temple and they were sung in community. And many of the Psalms of lament and suffering, they mourn the loss of community that their suffering has brought. Right. So they're always reaching for community. So I think we have to start understanding, you know, the Psalms were Israel's songbook, right? 
that's what they sang in community. And so I think if we start exploring the themes of the Psalms, like the suffering Psalms and the anger Psalms, um, like I think that we should pray imprecatory prayers in community. I know that's really odd and it would probably take us like baby steps to get there. But like I was telling Meg last night, I you probably remember a few years ago when that group of uh, 200 young girls were kidnapped by that, uh, I think it was like the Lord's Liberation Army or something in Africa. And they were kidnapped and they thought they were going to mm. force them into sex slavery. And the whole world was in an uproar. And I remember when I first heard about that, like something just rose up in my heart, like this anger. And I could hear the psalmist saying, you know, rise up, God, mm. pull your mighty right arm out of your robe, right? Which was like this poetic, um, you know, symbolism for God's power, like pull your mighty right arm out of your robe, get up off your throne and go get them like smash them to the ground, knock their teeth out, God. I mean, these are the things the psalmist said, like, you know, bring them to judgment, wipe them off the face of the earth, like blot out their name from existence. I mean, like pray this anger towards God. I think that, that those kinds of things, like we need to be able to come together when world events like that happen and, and mourn those things and pray as the psalmist would have prayed. And I don't think we can just do that all of a sudden because we probably freak most people out. But but I think like like we can let the psalmist start to shape how we worship together. You know, we may have to start out doing it in like smaller groups, like like you know maybe home fellowship groups or um, things like that. But like difficult expressions were not meant to only be done in grief share groups. I was telling Meg last night. You know, Paul said, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. He, he made no qualifiers. He didn't say, okay, weep with those who weep uh, in Sunday school run room 100 on Wednesday night in grief share. Okay. But you can rejoice with those who rejoice in the main sanctuary during every service. Mm. He didn't say that. He just said, do it. And so I think that, that we have to um, think about ways that we can like, set with people's suffering and hold that tension between belief and experience because it's always there because we're human beings. But I think if we learn like the psalmist teach us and praying through the psalms every month and like letting it shape our prayer language, we start to see the belief the tension between belief and experience is necessary. Like it, it's a necessary tension because it's it, it strengthens us. Um, and so I think like using scripture and using the Psalms and, and understanding that, um, you know, expressions of suffering keep on our radar. The fact that we don't live in the not yet, right? Yeah. Christ's kingdom has not come. And, and those kinds of things can also teach us, you know, to reach forward and cry out for God's kingdom to come um, as God's people. And so, I think like really looking at, at the examples in scripture and, and starting to, and, and using people on your worship planning team. I was telling Meg last night, I think it's important to like bring counselors and psychologists and people trained in behavioral health onto your worship planning team. Right. And, you know, like if somebody um, has a tragedy in their family, the next time we come together as the body of Christ, we need to be sensitive to that. And, and give time in the service to hold that pain 
because we are called to do that in community. We're absolutely 100% called to do that in community. We're not called to gloss it over, you know, and swing from the chandeliers. Um, and everything's just going to be all right, you know. It, right now, it's not, you know. And so we are called as God's people to hold those things. So, yeah, I mean, I could talk on and on. But that's a great question, Sister Norris. And it, it's one we really need to dig into. Mm, I agree. Yes. Okay. So we have another question from Mike yeah. Shaver, who says, I've struggled most of my life with depression and anxiety. And one time I was so mad at God during a service that I told him that I didn't want the Holy Ghost. And immediately I felt so bad that I was afraid that I wouldn't be saved. I guess he was awaiting the thunder clap from above. Oh. Is that blasphemy? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't, I'll, I'll let Pastor uh, Beardsley talk about the blasphemy part. But, um, you know, I will say this, that um, Psalm 37, which I was actually going to read, um, a little bit of. I actually have it uh, here in oh, my banners. So okay. if you, if you want to read, go ahead. I'm here. Yeah. With you. So we don't have to read the whole thing, but um, so this is a attributed to David. But if you look towards the end of that psalm, um, did I just do look at? Sorry. Psalm 39. I had the wrong song. Oh. <laughs> All right. So Psalm 39, um, David pretty much does what you did. <laughs> um, that prayer. So at the end, um, it's a tough psalm. So if you look at verse 12, he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Like I'm just passing through this life. And then he's so exasperated with God that, and he says, look away from me. Mm. God, look away from me, like go away. So I can smile again before I depart, before I die. And I'm no more just like, turn your face from me. There's one translation that says, turn your face from me so I can die in peace. That's really, really tough language. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I think God understands our heart. Um, I think, you know, I, you know, I, I know depression and anxiety is really hard. I've struggled with that for many years in my life, many, many years in my life. Um, and I, and Psalm 88 is another one that, that that's the darkest Psalm. It, it ends with the phrase darkness is my only companion. Like all I know is darkness. And I mean, it, that Psalm really, 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 really um, has some really tough expressions toward God. But like, I, I, I mean, I have found that when I'm in those really dark periods, like if I can look at those Psalms and, and, and pray those Psalms and know that, um, you know, God is with me in my suffering, I may not feel him there. I may not know him there, but he is with me in my suffering. Um, and I, I think that, you know, honest expressions of our heart towards God are welcomed to him, welcomed from him. And, and he knows that sometimes we, we just, we think of him as a person, like, just go away. Like you are tormenting me. You know, I mean, I do think it's important to understand that, um, you know, sometimes what is life tormenting us and our, our brokenness and our, you know, our, just our bodies, become ill, you know, physically and mentally, 
Like those things are very difficult for us to live with, but we still feel the outcome of it. So like, I would just encourage you to like really explore the Psalms and, and those really difficult expressions and, and trusting that, um, you know, praying those and wrestling through those with God can really um, bring you into deeper dialogue with him. You know, that's, that's, that's where I would start. And uh, uh, Caleb, can you share your uh, Pastor Stevens uh, yeah, answer? I was just about yeah, to do well, that. Thank you. I would like to hear that. So he says, Mike Shaver, you have received the Holy Spirit and he is still with you now. So no, it was not blasphemy. It was limit. I think that's a really excellent way to close out the broadcast for me. I think that's a very excellent answer. And although, although I, I do have another way to close out the broadcast, you made me think of when you talked about uh, <laughs> going back to darkness. You made me think of the Simon and Garfunkel song, "Hello Darkness, My Old Friend." Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Simon and Garfunkel were channeling their inner yeah. uh, King David. Yeah. Yes, their inner lament. Oh, yeah. that's so great. Yeah. Well, we are at the top of the hour. Um, and we have so enjoyed having you on. And there's, you know, a couple questions that we weren't even able to get to just because of the thought that what you shared with us tonight has generated. Um, you just, I mean, from talking with you last night, you know, like we had said, getting off the phone, I just said to you, there's no way you can hear this. There's no way we can be exposed to this information and not be at least challenged to be changed, you know, it touches you. Now what we do with that is up to us, but thank you so much for, for doing, doing this part of ministry, you know, for feeling, you know, answering the call to, um, you know, share this and educate our communities, you know, and people, individuals, and also groups, churches about um, the value and the, this is part of becoming like Christ. Right. And you know, I will, to shed that. Yeah. To I, like Christ. I will say really quickly, since sister Norris is on the broadcast, mm -hmm. that during my darkest hour of my physical and mental suffering, brother and sister Norris literally took me into their home and took care of me. And so, um, what is it? Second Corinthians chapter one that talks about, that very thing that you you have taken the suffering of others you know yes. you know i can't remember exactly how it reads but they embodied that and so these are people who know and so um when i talk about suffering needing to be born in community prime example right there so i love you sister norris oh <laughs> yes and i yes they are they embody a lot of beautiful yeah. things yeah yeah oh, christ and Indeed. we love them and um their ministry as well and but we just well uh th we welcome it's gonna say um, that's my starting uh script we want to thank everybody for being on the broadcast tonight and listening uh just as a reminder i will get the praying through the psalms um sheet uh, attached to our website at newarkupc.info. Uh, we broadcast six out of seven nights a week, Tuesdays through uh, Sundays. We are here at 7 p.m. every evening for either a Bible study, uh, uh, thematic uh, lesson we do throughout the week, and Friday night with friends. So don't forget to join us again tomorrow night. Thank you, everybody. Thanks again, Anne, and everybody have a good night. Thank you.